0: Well, so uh, we could possibly read a little bit just on the uh, kind of the tail end of Solomon. I mean, we, we pretty much covered David last time, and I think the uh, moral of the story with David was, um, you know, unfortunately failure, human failure, but nonetheless God's fidelity. Human failure that uh, actually results in highlighting God's fidelity. Um, and uh, great consequences, negative consequences uh, Because of David's sin with Bathsheba The death of at least three of his uh, sons And possibly uh, possibly more Possibly stretching uh, the death of many of his descendants Stretching across a few hundred years And uh, does David's sin in some sense, somehow Have some causal role in Solomon's sin? I don't know, I'm not sure uh, but certainly Solomon, uh, he's really in, in many ways responsible for uh, the dissolution of the unity of the kingdom of, of Israel. So does anybody recall uh, or know it even apart from this class? Uh, Israel, you can use the term Israel in a broad sense, meaning all 12 tribes is Israel. <clears throat> but then in a specialized sense, you can use the word Israel to designate uh, one of the two kingdoms that, that, that result from the split. You know, and you've got the southern kingdom and you've got the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called what? Judah, Judah right. And then the northern kingdom is called Israel. Alright, so you've got the word Israel in a general sense of so all twelve tribes, including Judah, are, are Israel. But then you've got Judah in a very spe- I'm sorry, Israel in a very specialized sense and that designates that northern kingdom, which has basically ten tribes to it and then you have Judah and the Levites. And uh, the northern kingdom uh, is destroyed by the Assyrians in the uh, late 8th century, probably around 721, I think, something like that. And um, and they're dispersed, and uh, they're kind of scattered amongst the, the, the Gentile nations, and the, there's lots of kind of legends that arise about them being hidden somewhere. And they're going to return suddenly, you know. And you've got, uh, for example, um, the Mormon religion actually is is founded largely on a kind of a legend about the twelve. I'm sorry, about the ten lost tribes. Uh, they they believe the Mormons believe that the ten lost tribes got on uh, boats and they came over to the New World um, and started a whole civilization in in the Americas. And um, it's kind of hard to argue that historically but anyways that's what they that's what they believe okay it's just really it's i'm being nice if i call it a legend it's really you know kind of a fairy tale but you know that that's so it, i think the better way to understand it though is something like the mormon religion kind of flows forth out of all of these kind of legendary ideas that have swir- uh, swirled around the idea of the lost 10 tribes because it's not just the mormons you've had many many different christian groups over the centuries who have had some kind of very romantic attachment to the idea of this lost 12 tribes. But in any event, the the, tr- the nation that continues on is Judah. And that's where, when we say the word Jew, okay, Jewish person, a Jew, it comes from Judah, okay, because it's that southern kingdom that continued on and became the more sort of dominant uh, kingdom. And probably the vast majority of the Old Testament is written from the perspective of Judah, and not really from the perspective of Israel. So there's a little bit of a bias, hopefully an accurate bias, but there's a, there's a little bit of a bias from the perspective of Judah. And, uh, but I guess we go back to what's the cause of the split. In a certain sense, Solomon is responsible for that. What is Solomon's sin? You know, we, we know David's sin. What's Solomon's sin? Too many. I, I think it probably might be that might be in a sin. I mean, uh, the real problem, in addition to the certainly, it was not prudent for him to have that many wives. Okay, all right. Whether it was sin or not, it was certainly not prudent. Okay, he, in Deuteronomy, it says, "You shall not." The king shall not multiply to himself wives. All right, and he has seven hundred wives, and 300, 300 concubines. Okay. Which is like a wife, but of a kind of a second, second class status compared to the, compared to the full wife. Where, you know, it was, I, I think realistically what he would do is, you know, it was a sign of his, uh, well, it was oftentimes done for the purpose of making alliances with other nations. Okay, so he would have peace agreements with the nation. One of the ways that he would do that, or a sign of that peace agreement, or the peace agreement would be sealed by him marrying the daughter of whoever the king or the chieftain was that he had uh an agreement with and he would set her up in royal fashion treat her like a queen she'd have her own kind of palace and her family was there did he see her a lot probably not probably not at all okay
1: yeah.
0: uh so but that was that's the reality that's how they lived
1: but but not not taking care of the kids or being with the kids that wasn't considered um,
0: no i mean that's why we believe really, uh, by the natural law, um, the way God intended it is one man, one woman for life, right, okay, and precisely because of the children issue, precisely because of children, okay, taking care of the kids it 's more it 's actually you can you can devote the necessary attention to your children the more the the wives multiply, and the more the families start to get spread out and separated, the, the less the contact with the father can actually have, and we actually see that with David right, David had all of these. Brat kids who were, uh, especially Absalom, who was really kind of a brat, you know, and uh, because it says specifically, the Bible says, now his father never at any time in his life when he was growing up ever said to him, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> so, point is, he would, he was never—he was never chastised or corrected or spanked or rebuked or there was no, no you know, discipline. No. no discipline, absolutely no discipline for Absalom. So he. He, yeah, sounds like so. You know, he he grew up to be a kind of a self-centered, ego, egotistical guy that was so selfish and really so alienated from his father that he didn't mind doing all the nasty things. He was willing to kill his father. You know, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he waged war against his dad. You know, so. Um, but then we get to Solomon, and Solomon's mistake is the multiplying of wives. But more than that, though, it was the multiplying of pagan wives. And in addition to building them a palace, he would build them a temple to their own god or goddess. And so then Jerusalem started being filled with pagan temples. So idolatry was really the main thing that Solomon had a problem with. Okay? And that's the main reason why the judgment of God comes down upon him.
2: He was so
0: wise. I'm sorry?
2: But he was so wise. But he
0: was wise, you're right. It's the fall, he fell. You know, David was extremely pious and righteous and he fell big time. You know? All the way to adultery and murder, so far as to murder someone, uh, you know. So, and, and David was a man after God's own heart. Extremely pious, uh, holy guy, really. You know, no, no joke. Uh, a saint. A saint. And we, we believe that uh, he repented uh, very thoroughly and is a saint. And we invoke him actually in the Litany of the Saints, King David. But Solomon, as I said last time, actually his status I think from what I read the traditional commentators in the Catholic tradition this the actual uh, ultimate fate of Solomon is kind of an open question whether he's in heaven or hell okay so we don't know what happened with Solomon, but he had a good start. he was wise and he asked specifically in the when uh, after he dedicates the temple it's a very the the dedication of the temple is kind of the high point of, of, of the Old Testament in a certain sense, and it's all downhill from there. And that's his glo- that's his acme, that's his glory points. And uh, the glory of God actually comes down and dwells in the temple. And the glory is so intense that the priests can't stand and they fall- they're falling down and, and they can't. And Solomon is on his knees with his hands spreading. He's got this prayer that lasts like three chapters. It's this really a uh, magnificent prayer that's got. Packed full of tons of wonderful uh, teachings and theology, and um, that's kind of the high point. And then from there, um, it's kind of downhill. Oh, actually, you know what? It's not quite downhill because after the dedication of the temple, he has a dream, and that's when God visits him in the dream and he says, What do you want? I can give you one of three things. I can give you victory over your enemies, I can give you a lot of uh, money. Or I can give you wisdom and he says, well, I'm really young and it's not, this is a very difficult job I have to lead your people and I need prudence and wisdom, so give me wisdom. And God says, you've answered, you know, you've gotten the most intelligent, uh, request. So not only will I give you wisdom, but I'm also going to give you victory over your enemies and I'm going to give you the, the money as well, riches. And so then Solomon becomes known for being very wise and then you have a story or two after that that displays his wisdom. What's the famous story that displays Solomon's wisdom? With the baby. With the baby, right? Okay. So you've got these two uh prostitutes and one of them is a mother and has a child and she's taking care of her child. And uh, actually I'm sorry, both of them are mothers and they both have children and one of them uh It rolls over on her child, if I'm not mistaken. I got it. This is years before I go that I read this. So if if my memory serves me, she rolls over on her child and smothers it in the night and kills it. And then what she does is she takes the, when she wakes up in the morning, she takes the dead baby, her own dead baby, and she goes over to the other sleeping, her friend, and gives her the dead baby and then takes the living baby. You know, and uh, what did you say, Sue? Stories in
2: the Bible. I know. I just wonder. I know.
0: Well, no, the Bible is full of a lot of scandalous stories. It's it's packed full of scandalous stories. And like I said, if at the end when we're done with this kind of overview of the Bible, if we can do a little bit of a kind of apologetics, meaning explaining how how to certain things like the violence in the Bible, we might ad- address the Bible, the the violence that we see in the Bible. We might address things like how do you reconcile. Uh, what many believe to be scientific uh, theory and fact with some of the early chapters of Genesis. We might, so we might get in and talk about some of these things if we've got time. But yeah, the Bible's full of a lot of uh, kind of scandalous stories. The Old Testament in particular is not necessarily meant to always portray saints. Okay, So it's, it has a lot of negative stories and uh, the, it's uh, very subtle. The message is very subtle. So I remember recently listening to... Uh, there was a wonderful, uh, what do I want to call it, a conference in the Vatican recently, a few months ago, and it was called Humanum, and it was basically a big promotion of marriage and family. And I, I really highly recommend uh, getting on YouTube and, and searching for this Humanum. It was just, they did a wonderful thing. They had about, I think, five of these 15-minute clips that were very moving uh, uh, and very artistic, it just talking about marriage and family. And then they had a conference full of you know world-class scholars, and it was wonderful to see a, a very a kind of an inter-religious uh, and interdenominational kind of meeting. So there were Catholic scholars, there were Protestant scholars, there was a Jewish scholar, there might have been a Muslim scholar, I'm not sure, but there was certainly a Jewish scholar. And the Jew- Jewish scholar, the rabbi, he was actually the chief rabbi of England, and his speech I thought was awesome, was really good. And one of the one of the points that he made, he says that actually the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, is an implicit critique of polygamy. And that I, I really think that's true. The whole Old Testament is actually a critique of polygamy. So some people might say, well, how come in the New Testament within Christianity Jesus says monogamy is the only way, but you see all this polygamy in the Old Testament? Well, actually they're closer together than you might think, because it's actually an implicit critique. Polygamy is never works out well in the Old Testament. There's always problems. The wives are fighting each other, there's the kids are killing each other, and there's always some kind of conflict. And that's precisely what it's always been in Catholic teaching, why polygamy's uh not not compatible with the natural law in an ideal sense, because um, of uh it doesn't it's not it doesn't facilitate peace and harmony and unity. Um so again, not to pick on the poor Mormons, but the Mormons resuscitated polygamy, and it was kind of you know i mean they they 're kind of going backwards here they're they're uh they thought they were being biblical just because you can read stories in the Bible of polygamy you know but it's it's really not i mean same thing with Islam too Islam as well it 's a little bit of a step backwards um and I have uh you know, I've, I've listened to an audio book recently of a Muslim woman growing up in Somalia, and she was one... Uh, her mother was one of four wives of her father, and so she tells that story, and it's it's not, it's not it a bed of roses. Yeah, no, there's real problems. At one point, the father was out of their life for like eight years. She never saw her dad for like eight years because he, he was in another country with another wife, and and the women are just expected to hold... to. Hang tight and just stick it out, you know. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's uh, Solomon's polygamy mistake, and the and the big thing though is the idolatry, and that leads to the split. Okay. So let's see here. Let's go to one Kings twelve twenty five. So what happens is this: you've got the split that takes place. Okay, so the northern uh, nation kind of breaks away from Judah and from uh, King Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and then you have uh, the new. There's a new king. It's kind of a rebel king of the northern kingdom. And uh, does anybody know what his his name is? It's right there in verse 25. Jeroboam, yeah. So Jeroboam is the first king of the northern, uh, nation. Of the, of the nation of Israel. And actually, the prophet who prophesies the split, it's very interesting. The, the prophet says to Jeroboam, if you obey the Lord, and you do everything you're supposed to do, you obey the law, I'm gonna bless you, God's gonna bless you, and you're gonna be a prosperous nation. So it's very interesting because even though a schism happened, that's not the ideal, that's like plan, it reminds me a lot of, the, of how we deal things within the church, really. My joke always is that within Catholicism you've got a plan A, and you have a plan B, and you have a plan C, and you have a plan D. So there's always these pastoral strategies like, okay, ideally this is the way it should be, but given... You know, imperfect situations, sin, so forth and so on, we kind of knock it down a notch to a B, and then maybe a C, and then if we gotta go to a D, we can do that too, and we're okay. You know? So, but it's very interesting to see that in scripture as well. So there's a schism between the northern and the, and the southern kingdom. That's not supposed to happen. That's not plan A. Plan A is that they would be unified, one kingdom. But given the sin that caused the split, God actually says to the northern kingdom after the schism, he says, well, if you obey my law, you're going to be a prosperous nation, you're going to be okay. You know? So, but what does Jeroboam do? Is he, is he stick on the straight and narrow? Well, that's what we're going to find out right here. So, does anybody want to read for us? George, you want to read? Not really. No? Okay. <laughs> Good. George is an honest man. Uh, Nancy's always brave.
3: <laughs> Okay.
0: So why don't you read from t- verse 25, and then just keep going up I'll probably tell you to stop something.
3: Okay. Jeroboam built up Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. Then he left it and built up Penul, religious rebellion. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will return to David's house. If now this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, the hearts of this people will return to their master. Jeroboam king of Judah, and they will kill me. After taking counsel, the king made two calves of gold and said to the people, You have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. Here is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he put one in Bethel, the other in Dan. This led to sin because the people frequented these calves in Bethel and in Dan. He also built temples on the high places and made priests from among the people who were not Levites. Jeroboam established a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month to duplicate in Bethel the pilgrimage feast of Judah. With sacrifices to the calves he had made, and he stationed in Bethel priests of the high places he had built. Message of the prophet from Judah.
0: So, um, well, Jeroboam doesn't doesn't stay on the straight and narrow. What what's his first of all? What does he do, and then why does he do it? What's he do first? What do you think, uh, Jack? What does Jeroboam do? Putting people on the hot seat. I probably shouldn't do that. What's the, what's the sin? What's Idolatry. the sin? Idolatry. 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 Yeah. And, and specifically, he has these golden calves. Alright, where did we hear that before? the right. sin of golden calf right in Mount Sinai with Moses, okay? So it's almost like, uh, golden calf sin, Rita It comes back from the dead to haunt us. And, uh, and then if you look at the, I wish I had my powerpoints and maps and all the gizmos and stuff, but I don't. So, if you can just use your imagination, you've got the northern kingdom here and the southern kingdom here. If I'm not mistaken, Bethel's right down there, and Dan is way up north. So he put a he put a he built a shrine here and a shrine there, and so that that way the people wouldn't go. His so so why does he do that though? What's the rationale? What's he afraid of hap- taking place? People leaving. For what? For what reason? When they go to the temple. When they go to the temple, because this—it's the north—it's the the southern kingdom that's got the temple. So the southern kingdom's got the religious center, and Jeroboam says he knows that politics and religion often go together. And if I don't have any kind of religious something to offer the people, they're going to start going down to Jerusalem, outside of my country, and I'm not going to have any. They're going to start. It's going to be a problem. They're going to leave. And so he says, "Okay, I'll give him religion," and but he creates his own religion, and that's the problem. That's the sin. He first of all idolatry, and then secondly, he makes his own feast day. You know what I mean? He gets he gets liturgically creative. Okay, you know, so he makes his own feast day. He uh, he he starts building altars and all these different high places and stuff, which were probably pagan pagan uh, altars and temples. And then also the priesthood. He violates the priesthood, right? He just kind of sets up his own priesthood. He's like, ah, you know the whole Levitical thing. Yeah, that's from God. Blah 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 blah. Well, we'll just set up our own priests. You know, <laughs> who wants to be a priest? Come on. <laughs> going once, going twice. <laughs> Twenty-four, forty-four, fifty-five. <laughs> I'll be a priest. Okay. So he he just got he chooses these these people from um, uh, amongst the, the the people who are not from the Levitical tribe. They don't have a right to be a priest, and he appoints them as priests. And, uh, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, very interestingly, there was a time in, in church history in the fourth century, and, uh, he's known by the ancient theologians, not a very flattering term, he's called, uh, Julian the Apostate. Not a very, not a very, uh, you know, flattering term to be known as, but Julian the Apostate. Julian was, uh, he was a baptized Catholic grew up he was a descent you know he was probably I don't know maybe grandson of Constantine okay so Constantine's dead and off the scene at this point Julian is probably his grandson and he's kind of an up and rising star he's probably going to be the next emperor this is around the year something like I think uh, 350 okay so fourth century and um, you know Julian is uh, he's a Catholic he's a baptized Catholic. Um, I think he might have had some Arian sympathies and leanings, meaning the the Arian heresy. But he's 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 broadly within that Catholic stream or the the, the historical Christian Catholic stream. And um, but I think I'm pretty sure he gets kind of corrupted because he has a tutor who's a pagan, and the pagan tutor is a very learned man. And see, the pagans could kind of see the writing on the wall, and they saw the numbers of pagans dwindling and the numbers of Christians growing. And they started to long for the good old days before Christianity came on the scene. And so they had certain kind of a revival of romantic notions about paganism. Okay? Paganism was this noble religion because it was very ancient. And Christianity was kind of like a pop religion. It was like new upstart kind of religion. That's part of their, part of their sort of polemic against Christianity and uh, and so then all the christians would always say no our religion's not new it's ancient and so then they would trace it back to the eight patriarchs and the you know the christians would say no we go back to the old testament our religion is a you know continuous stream going all the way back to the stuff that we're talking about so that was always that was the apologetic from the christians but in any event uh, uh julian gets kind of really into this paganism and you know he can he knows that his You know, his great grandfather was a pagan, and his ancestors before that, going back to time immemorial, were pagans. And so he's got this kind of romantic idea, and he actually goes so far as to become a lector in the church. Now, being a lector at the church at that time was really a big deal. It's a big deal now, too, but I mean, it was really a big deal. Only men, and he was, you know, you had a, it was like working up ranks of clergy. It was almost like you're close to being clergy at that point. So he was actually a lector, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, but all the while he was living a double mind, so he would he would practice Christianity externally, but he was developing all this kind of knowledge and love for paganism and all this kind of stuff. And so eventually, when he comes to power, he kind of comes out of the closet and he says, "Ta-da! I'm a pagan. I hate Christianity." <laughs> and and then he starts persecuting the church. He starts persecuting the church and. Um, he says though, it's interesting, he goes, you know, those Christians really got a good idea. They're, they're winning over the hearts and the minds of the populace because they're setting up hospitals, they take care of widows, they actually care about babies, you know, they, they care about handicapped and all this kind of stuff. There's social services, they're taking care of the poor. And the people love that stuff. It's really working out. We pagans, we've never done that stuff. So let's try it out. So he sets up his own religion. Okay, he really, he creates it de novo, like out of the blue. He creates his own religion, sets up his own priests. He pushes his priests into like trying to take care of the poor and they like, they try their best, but they do, their heart's just not in it. And it really just is kind of pathetic. But, uh, it it reminds me a lot of these kings who are, who are doing these alternative, you know, competing religions to the one true religion that God has revealed. And they just, it eventually falls flat. And that's what happens with the Northern Kingdom. Unfortunately, it falls flat. And they get, uh, it lasts for about 300 years, which is albeit a pretty long time. God keeps giving them, um, opportunities to repent, and He sends the Northern Kingdom prophets. So when you read the prophets, a lot of these guys, they go to the Northern Kingdom. They, these are God's people, and He wants them to repent and get on the right straight and narrow. But they don't, and so the Assyrian nation comes in, wipes them out, the, the Southern Kingdom continues on, and um, and then they get wiped out uh, by Babylon. But the only the difference with them is that they have David's dynasty and his lineage, and so then there's the prop, the promise that the, the promise that God made to David is not going to be changed. And so this is what we're going to read about in the in the prophets. So that brings us to the major prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those are the major prophets. Now, the minor prophets are, uh, the twelve prophets and Daniel. I think, oh no, yeah, I think Daniel would be considered a minor prophet, although he might be a major prophet. I'm not sure about that. I know there's a difference between how the, the, the Jewish religion looks at Daniel and how the Christian religion looks at Daniel. But in any event, uh, here's a little quote from, uh, John Bergsma, one of the, one of the books I used to kind of put this class together. He says, The three major prophets are like weathermen who see storms and gloom in the short term, but whose extended forecasts are full of sunny days. Okay, So yeah, that's nice. Uh, so the short term is you guys are idolaters and you're going to get punished for it. And the Babylonians are going to come in and wipe you out and punish you. and uh, So that's the bad news. That's the short term forecast. But the long term forecast is good news. God's promises will still not be annulled. They won't they won't fail. God is still going to be true to his promises even if you guys are not faithful, God is faithful. Uh and I think there's a passage from St. Paul who says um, he says if we remain if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So there's there's something about uh the immovability of God's fidelity and uh you know, think about how pathetic it would be if God had this great plan of salvation and then he wasn't able to actually pull it off. You know? I mean, that would be really kind of a pathetic god. So it's a, it's a real threat to God's sovereignty for human sin to actually triumph in the end of the day. I mean, that would just be ridiculous. You know, God would not be God if that actually took place. So, by hook or by crook, God's going to win. And uh Christ, who's God himself, is going to come and take care of things and make sure uh, the covenant and the promises made to Abraham are going to be going to be fulfilled, and so that's what the prophets prophesy. And um, so let's go to Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah chapter nine. And today is the feast of the Annunciation. We had, a, if anybody went to church today, we had a beautiful reading. Their first reading was from Isaiah chapter seven, I believe. But let's go to Isaiah chapter nine. Now this is kind of nice because Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are are back to back. They're right in a row. So I, you know, I'm not going to make you guys jump around the Bible. You know, it's going to be one book right after the other one. What page? page? It would be nice to have pages, right? Eight
3: thirty-three in mine.
1: Seven fifty-four in
0: mine. Oh, that doesn't help. We're going to have three or four. Ask, ask one ask two Catholics and you get five opinions. <laughs> What's your number? 690. Alright. We're in Isaiah chapter nine. Okay. So we've got enough doom and gloom, right guys? Are we got enough doom and gloom? We've heard a lot of doom and gloom, especially last class. So here's the positive. This is the long term forecast. We're going to skip over the short term, okay? So the long term, the extended forecast is sunny days. Who wants to be a brave volunteer for uh, chapter uh, nine, verses one through seven? Through seven. Yeah. Gary, you want? Okay. Who is that? Who volunteered? Rick. Rick, okay.
2: The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing as they rejoice before you at the harvest as men make merry when dividing spoils. Oh, wait, are you a knight?
0: That's right, okay, keep going then. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Different translations
2: confuse mm-hmm. me. You're, you're, you're good, Rich. For the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their uh, shoulder and the rod of their taskmaster, uh, you have smashed as on the day of Midian. For every boot that trampled in battle, every cloak rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for flames. For a child is born to us, a son is given us, upon his shoulder, dominion rests. They name him Wonder, Counselor, God, Hero, Father forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful from David's throne and over his kingdom which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice both now and forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this
0: Great <laughs> Very good the zeal you see look at the final cause who what's going to really be the ultimate cause of all this uh, triumph the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this so it's God's, God is gonna do it. And isn't this beautiful? I may, it really makes me want to cry here. There'll be no gloom. And he talks about lights. And, uh, you know, if anybody was there for my Sunday homily, I talked about lighting the candle and not cursing the darkness. And it's a, it's a great hope that we have here. Here's another thing, right? In light of all the violence that we hear about every day that's taking place all over the world, isn't this a wonderful, promise here in verse 5 for every boot of the of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire meaning the war is going to be done okay so the the warriors are going to take off their boots all the blood everything's going to be done we're going to set it in the fire and it's going to be over with fuel burned and Christ is the prince of peace and now that be, that peace begins in baptism and in the sacraments and in our lives as we live Christian lives, but it comes to fulfillment. Not it hasn't come to ultimate fulfillment yet. So we still await that, obviously, because we see war <laughs> all over the world, and in part, you know, we're we're responsible for it in a certain sense. However, a little bit, you know, we ourselves might be responsible for it. So um, we're not all saints quite yet. Uh, St. James says, Why are there wars among you? Is it not your passions that war within you? You see, we have a war in our hearts. Concupiscence, that word again. You know, it's that battle that's taking place inside of us. And, uh, because that battle's going on, sometimes we lose that battle here, we begin, there's battles that take place outside. If the, if the war was always won in here for every human being, it would be perfect peace in the world. But it's because of our passions, greed, Envy, uh, ignorance, um, these sorts of things that cause these cause war. So uh, this is a wonderful um, prophecy of the Messiah, and we know it's the Messiah because it says, "Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, he's going to establish it, and in the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end." So there's this final, ultimate King who's going to be on David's throne, and his government. His rule, his authority, and the peace that he brings will be everlasting. So this is a final messianic future Davidic king, no doubt. And we as Christians believe that Jesus fulfills this. Um, and uh, you know, it would be—it's too much to get into now. But maybe in years to come, and and uh, probably in an apologetics class, I would show how the Old Testament prophecies are very. I, I think I've kind of—we've seen this already. I mean, I, I think that. We've seen how much of all of these Old Testament figures and passages really do kind of seem to point to Jesus. Now if one, just one of these pointed to Jesus, you might say, well, you know, that could be a chance, that's chance, you know, and you could be reading into it. We could be projecting our own Christian presuppositions into the Old Testament. But when you have all the different examples we've seen throughout the course of this year and they all conspire together and seem to point towards this guy Jesus, or at least this guy Jesus really is a good candidate, fulfilling all of these. Uh, it's not coincidence. It seems like it's divine intention and that God's plan is is being fulfilled in history and that all of this is part of the unfolding of His will in, in the earth. But this this prophecy here about the Messiah, it's clearly a messianic prophecy, can be linked up to Isaiah 7. And Isaiah 7 talks about a virgin birth. Okay, Now there's some disputes about scholars. They think, well, it's probably... Not, uh, the, the, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, but the young woman will conceive and give birth to a child. And that's kind of a, that's a battle that I can't, I can't necessarily fight right now, but I think you could argue pretty well that it, it, it should be virgin, uh, as opposed to, um, young woman. But in any event, uh, that child that's born of this woman we read about in, in Isaiah, uh, chapter seven is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we kind of see the same figure here in nine, and then we see the same figure in chapter eleven. So let's go to Isaiah eleven, verses one through six, and we see some more hope. Does uh, Chris or Wendy want to read? Or Chris, I thought I thought I heard you read before, right? Okay, go ahead.
1: But a huge sprout from the stump of Jesse and from the roots a bud shall blossom. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Not by appearance shall he judge, nor by hearsay shall he decide, but he shall judge the poor with justice and decide a right for the lands afflicted. He shall strike the ruthless with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Justice shall be at the band around his waist, and faithfulness a belt upon his hips. Then the wolf shall be a guest of the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion shall browse together with a little child to guide them. The cow and the bear shall be neighbors. Together their young shall rest. The lion shall eat hay like the ox. The baby shall play by the cobra's den. And the child lay his hand on the adder's lair. There shall be no harm or ruin on all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse set up as a signal for the nations. The Gentiles shall seek out, for his dwelling shall be glorious. That's good.
0: Excellent. So another beautiful messianic prophecy, and uh, I thought of, I thought there was the mention of Emmanuel in there. Hmm. Uh, I guess I. Huh. I thought there was a mention of a manual in in there somewhere. There's two mentions of Emmanuel. Was in in chapter seven and then somewhere else. I thought it was in eleven, but in any event, this is certainly a messianic prophecy. And uh, you know, again, you've got David's lineage because um, what's the stump of Jesse? What's who's Jesse? Does anybody know? Jesse is related to David, but in which direction? Is he a descendant or an ancestor? He's an ancestor, actually. Okay, David's uh, father. In fact, is Jesse. All right. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, so it says the there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse, if you kind of kind of imagine it, Jesse is this kind of progenitor, this ancient progenitor, and a shoot's going to come out. So some kind of development is going to uh, a, a descendant. Okay, it's the Messiah, right? Son of David, basically, is going to come out. And it says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now this is interesting. Here it says the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, so forth and so on. Here, this is the Hebrew text being translated into English, okay, and there's six of these different characteristics of the Spirit of the Lord. But in um, the Greek Old Testament, there's seven. There's seven, not six. And that's where we get our traditional uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, everybody who've gone through confirmation, you learn about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we actually draw that tradition going back to the Greek Old Testament and not actually to the Hebrew Old Testament. So just that's a little FYI. But Christ was the first to be anointed by the Holy Spirit from His conception. Alright? And He has this plenitude, this sevenfold Spirit that's indwelling Him. And then we, as Christians, we participate in that same anointing. And in fact, the word Christ it has to do with oil and chrism you know the word chrism the word christ chrismation okay so the eastern another another name for confirmation is called chrismation okay cuz it has to do with oil and it has to do with the holy spirit being anointed with the holy spirit so we participate as christians and through confirmation we participate in this sevenfold spirit that rests on the messiah it's a wonderful thing now he's all about the poor and so this is why we talk about the preferential option for the poor and why you know, someone like Pope Francis talks a lot about the poor because the Messiah is going to have a special concern for the poor. His, with righteousness, he's going to judge the poor. So the poor are no longer going to be oppressed uh, by virtue of Christ, by virtue of the Messiah when he comes. The poor are going to be uh, liberated and given, given freedom and release from their oppression. Uh, and then in verse six, look at the peace of the earth. what happens? What does this remind us of? Uh, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid Yeah yeah, the Garden of Eden okay so it's a return back to that beginning uh, point where where the animals were not against man and there was peace okay. Now, how do you understand that historically? That's a different, I mean, we can get into that apologetics, but that seems to be a kind of a message and one of the themes that the Bible portrays is that in Eden, everything was peaceful and there weren't, you know, uh, man and animals at least were not, were not in, at odds with each other, okay? Whether animals were eating other animals or not, that's kind of a, a second, a different story, you know, but. Here, at least, for sure, certainly, it's portrayed as, as peace, even amongst the animals. And what, and specifically, though, the 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 lion and the wolf, who are known as predators, but then there's another kind of a nasty animal that seems to be kind of docile. What's that? Cobra. The cobra, the cobra, the snake. Okay, again, going back to Eden, uh, with the serpent. All right. All, all very interesting too. Says the suckling child shall play over the whole of the asp. So now you've got a little baby. Compared to a serpent, again, Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman, enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then we were, we just read in Isaiah chapter 11, a child is given to us. So the Messiah and child and baby, you know, it's all connected. So our whole tradition about the infant Christ and having Mary with the infant in her womb and all that stuff, it's very, it's Old Testament as well as New Testament. And, uh, okay, so that's a, a beautiful promise from Isaiah. Let's go to uh, Isaiah chapter 42. And then we can read, I'll, uh, I'll read the, the, this passage this time here. So, 42 verses 1 through 9. Um behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations he will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break in a dimly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice he will not fail or be discouraged Till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people So there's a lot here, but this is very likely another messianic prophecy. Scholars dispute this, but you know I think it could be argued, and I can't really necessarily do it now. But I think it could be argued this this too is a messianic prophecy. And uh, look at the Messiah, the different um, elements or aspects of this servant Messiah. The Spirit is upon him, just like we read in chapter 11. He's going to bring forth justice to the nations. Uh, the re- one of the things why you'd argue this is a Messiah is because it seems universal. Um, some scholars might argue, well, this is a particular king, uh, particularly Cyrus, who was a Persian emperor. But really, this is so over the top. This king figure, his reign is, is worldwide. Okay, it's not, it's to the nations, it's really universal here. Okay? Uh, and he will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So meaning when it says the coastlands in the Old Testament, it means places really, really, really far away. Okay, So it means the whole earth is what it's talking about. All right, And so the whole earth is waiting for this king and for his law. And that's it's the new law of the Messiah who's going to come. And um, so now in verse 6, it seems like God is speaking to the Messiah. He says, I am the Lord, I have called you Messiah in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. Now the people there is, I would imagine, okay, it's Israel. So I've given you as a covenant to Israel, alright, and a light to the nations. So when the Messiah comes, what's remarkable about him is that not only is he going to be just for the people of Israel, but he's going to be for the nations as well. And uh, does anybody recall the prophecy that Simeon gave to uh, the Blessed mother when she brought Christ to the temple sword. yes, a sword shall pierce uh, and and a sword shall pierce your own soul I believe, and in our our art we always have the sword going through Mary's heart you know but it Simeon says a, a sword shall pierce your soul and uh, this one shall be for the... Ro- oh, you know what? Wait a second. I think I'm making a mistake here. Oh, no, no, that's right. I'm right. So Simeon takes the child up in his arms, right? And remember, we've seen all these Old Testament prophecies about a child. And Simeon is, is uh, illuminated by the Holy Spirit and God speaks to him directly through Revelation and says, This little baby is him. And so the baby that's been prophesied, a child has been born to us, Simeon goes and he takes the child up in his arms. And he, then he gives his own prophecy. The and,
2: salvation, right?
0: Yes, not, it says the, the Nunc Dimittus is this famous, you know, you've got the Magnificat, which is Mary's hymn. And then you've got the Benedictus, which is Zachariah's hymn. And then you've got Simeon's hymn, which is called the Nunc Dimittus. And uh, when, if you pray the office, the church's office, the very last office of the night, uh, it's called Compline, and you sing the Nunc Dimittus. Okay. And uh, I say it every night, and I have said it every night for probably, I don't know, eight years, but I can't recall it right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to get going. Someone's <laughs> gotta start me. on it. it says, Now, Lord, you let your servant depart in peace, for my, my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, and I think he says people Israel Yeah, yeah, a light to your people Israel. Let's find it, okay, so I don't have to slaughter it through memory. So it's in Luke chapter one or two. My memory's not as good as it used to be when I was young. I'm getting old. That's my mom's. That's my mom's uh, excuse. So my mom is always able to make herself look really, really smart. Because if there's some kind of an ar- a question or an argument about history or whatever, she'll be like. Uh, and then I'll say it and she'll be like, oh yeah I- I've studied too much in my life. I l- I've learned too much and that's why I forgot. You know, so, so anytime she forgets, it's because she's too smart. That's how it is. That's how it works, you know? Well,
4: that's I know too
0: much. I know too much. That's why I can't remember this. That's what she says. So it's actually chapter 2. Yep, it's chapter 2, uh, verse 29. Actually we can even back it up. It's just interesting to see Simeon. I mean, how wonderful you know, the consolation. Um, yeah, okay, let's go let's start back in verse twenty-five, okay? So in, in Luke chapter two, verse twenty-five. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Now that word consolation is we're gonna read that in the next prophet we read when we get to Jeremiah. Jeremiah talks about the consolation of Uh, that God is going to console Israel. And so, here's Simeon who's waiting for the consolation of Israel, meaning he's waiting for the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. And uh, it had been revealed to him, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine that, right? And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. So I think that he's kind of alluding to what we read about here in Isaiah 42, where it says, I have given you as a covenant to the people a light to the Gentiles or a light to the nations. So Jesus is the light, that candle that burns in the darkness. And so those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And um, can you imagine how, how wonderful that is and how remarkable it is? I preached on this right before Advent. Um You know all of these prophecies about the Messiah coming and and he's going to illumine the nations. Well, I went over in this homily uh, three or four prominent messianic uh, claimants within Jewish history, and they they all of their movements and there's um, these three or four that I actually spoke about were just three or four of about forty or fifty. So there's forty or fifty messianic claimants within Jewish history. And all of them, to a man, were either killed or their movement became. They came to a really pathetic end. So, for one of them, the most famous messianic claimant was this guy Zavai, I think his name was, in the early 17th century, and he thought he was the Messiah. And he went to the Sultan, the Mohammedan Sultan, and said, "You know, accept me as Messiah." And the Sultan said. Ha ha! Put a sword to his throat throat, and says, "You accept Islam, or we kill you." And he actually accepted Islam. And it was he devastated the worldwide Jewry because uh, I look a good percentage. I got to go back to my homily because I had all these historical facts in it. It was like sixty or seventy percent of all Jewish people all over the world really thought that he was the Messiah. And they were publishing books and coins and all of this stuff, like celebrating this guy as the Messiah. And so after he converted to Islam, it was just devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And Judaism really took a new turn historically after that. And they started to get into the Hasidic movement, which really in a certain sense kind of almost getting away from Messianic hopes because they were so devastated about this guy. And he was such a pathetic failure. But in any event... You've got all these Jewish claimants, uh, to be the Messiah, and they all, their career either ended in a pathetic way, but most of them actually were killed. And their following, they had a few group of believers that really were on their, in their party. Uh, and actually it would be substantial following, a few thousands even. Some of them were up to tens of th- thousands. In the case of this guy who, who converted to Islam, it was way more than that. I, I would imagine it would be something like, ooh, I don't know, 75,000 or 100,000. People? Maybe more? I don't know. And, uh, but after they get killed, their following comes to nothing. Done. Done for. Kaput. And it never goes, uh, sometimes there's like a little secret society that continues on in the name of the person for a little bit of time, but eventually it disappears. Okay? And it never, in any of the messianic claimants, does it go outside of the Jewish believers. So their followers were always Jewish people. Never Gentiles. And so it's remarkable because Jesus, he gets a following too, and his life comes to kind of a sad and unsuccessful and even maybe a pathetic kind of an end, and he gets killed. But soon after his death, it's thousands and then tens of thousands of Jewish and then Gentile believers, to the point where it's billions of people believing in him. And it's the nations of the whole world. So that, that is a remarkable... I would argue a remarkable fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is that he's going to be a light to the, to the nations. So our lives, you know, we tra- trace our ancestry back to, uh, you know, uh, Ireland or France or Germany or wherever it is. But if you think about it, our heritage goes all the way back to these Gentile nations that were originally pagan and the gospel came to them and evangelized them. And for hundreds of years now, we have been the beneficiary of, of this of this new religion and the new law, and it says, you know, in this prophecy here in Isaiah 42, the coastlands wait for his law, and those who dwelt in darkness a light has has arisen upon them. I really I believe that we're it. We're living testimony to it. Us, our parents, our ancestors, um, and, and and Christians in general are a testimony, wonderful testimony to uh, this Old Testament prophecy. So. Um, Let's go to, oh, one more thing to point out about what's interesting about this prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 42 is that God, in all the other covenants, right? all, what about the covenants we've seen so far? We've seen kind of implicitly a covenant with Adam. That's kind of hard. I mean, you've got to argue it, you know? It's not really clear that there was a covenant with Adam. But, you know, for the sake of argument, there's a covenant with Adam. There was a covenant with Noah. There was a covenant with Abraham there's a covenant with Moses, and there's a covenant with David. Now, all of these covenants are covenants that God makes with a person. But this covenant is a person. And that's really remarkable. And that's that ties into what Simeon says when he actually sees the child. He says, now my eyes have seen God's salvation. So God's salvation and God's covenant are actually a person now. And that, that is Jesus. He is the new covenant. Um, all right, let's go to uh, one more passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 55. And let's just go for the first uh, verse... Uh, first three verses, as I don't know if you're into it. No? You're not a reader. Not a reader. Gary is. (laughs) Gary's not shy.
3: Lo, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good, the delight of yourselves in fatness. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. All right. Very good. So now we've another
0: covenant that we're looking at here, but it's an everlasting, or another translation would be eternal, covenants, and it's his sure love for David. And uh, how how you interpret that? You got a Hebrew word if you look at my little handout here. An everlasting covenant is brit or brit olam. Brit olam is uh, brit is covenant, and olam is uh, eternal. So an eternal covenant. And then the mercies of David, the sure ones. That's a literal translation of uh, let's see if I can read the Hebrew here. Uh Hasde David Amanim. Now if you look at these two words, uh Hasde is Hasid, which means God's it's a very interesting word. It's used a lot in the Old Testament, Hasid. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, oh yeah, has, are you familiar with the Jewish group, the Hasid, the Hasid, Hasidic Jew, yeah. right? <coughs> that comes from Hasid. Okay, right here. Hasid in in Hebrew means uh, it's a it's a very rich word. So I, I you can't even give it one English word. It means like loving kindness, faithfulness, fidelity, and it's really associated with a covenant. Okay, so that if you imagine a, a someone making a covenant and then being totally faithful to that covenant and not breaking that covenant uh and doing it out of love and fidelity and faithfulness that is is really marriage i mean it's like a marriage it's like an understanding of a marriage covenant and uh that's hesed. and so um, and then the next word is so you have the uh david meaning the 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 heseds of david or the mercies of david the loving kindnesses of david uh but then it's even more specified it's hananemim Uh, Now, if you listen to that word, you've got Amen in it. Amen. And Amen has to do with sureness. It is so. It is true. That's what we mean when we say Amen. So it's basically... And then of course, Jesus is called the Amen. He's called the Great Amen in in the New Testament. So, um, the mercies of David, the sure ones... It's a beautiful, beautiful thing here. So, the covenant that God made with David is going to be fulfilled and come to full flowering in this other covenant, this eternal covenant. So, let's go to the prophet Jeremiah. I told you, isn't this nice? You just can go to the next book, right? You don't have to jump around too much.
2: Thanks.
0: Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. This is a bit more cheerful reading today than last week, right? What was
4: week.
0: But you listen to it online. I know you're following every word online, Joyce. I know. I know you are. Okay. So 31-31, and then let's go to uh, thirty. Uh, let's see, here, yeah, thirty-one to thirty-four. Uh, Tony's another stalwart reader. anybody ever call you stalwart before, Tony? <laughs> I do it
3: a ton- at the tennis court.
0: <laughs> oh, you-
4: <laughs> see, days are coming. Oracle of the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke my covenant, though I was their master, oracle of the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, oracle of the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will no longer teach their friends and relatives, Know the Lord. Everyone, from least to greatest, shall know me, Oracle of the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and no longer remember their sin.
0: Great. So now we've read this a few times over the course of this, uh, series here, and it's a wonderful prophecy of the new covenant. So, again, we've got this future covenant that's gonna come, and it's explicitly called a new covenant, and it's actually contrasted over against the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was broken, remember the golden calf, and, you know, Mo, the symbol of the breaking is Moses comes down with the tablets, and he breaks the tablets. And in a certain sense, that was kind of a foreshadowing of what happens with the northern kingdom of Israel when they set up the, the, the two calves and they, they uh, break God's covenant and they fall into idolatry. And then, of course, the, the southern kingdom as well, unfortunately, they, they fall to idolatry as well. But nonetheless, God still has, despite the infidelity of uh, the nation of Israel, God still is going to fulfill His promises and His plans. And... Um, what else can we say? Here's a, something of speculation, a Tedesky uh, point of speculation and, and inquiry. I, I, uh, I want to really kind of get this down for future studies. So something I'm curious about, and I think I've got the right interpretation, but I, I won't swear on it. It says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So remember you've got, so I think what this is dealing with is Israel, meaning the northern kingdom, Judah, meaning the southern kingdom. Okay, now this Jeremiah is writing around the year, uh, I believe, around five eighty, five ninety, something like that. Okay, uh, it's just before the Babylonians come in and destroy the Southern Kingdom and and dethrone the Davidic King and uh, uh, destroy the temple or hurt the temple at least and and bring these temple sacrifices to an end. So it's just before that's happened, and Jeremiah is warning people that's going to happen. So that's the short term forecast that's negative. But in the midst of all these short-term negative forecasts, he gives long-term positive forecasts, and that's the one that we're reading right here. But it seems to me, this is, this is, if this is in the year 590, it's about 150 years or more after the northern kingdom has already been defunct. And so they're, they're destroyed. And here's a prophecy and a promise that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, that God's gonna make a new covenant with them. Now, how do we understand this? Reference to Israel, and it's going to become even more explicit when we get to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the prophet is going to have two staffs. One is going to have the the house of Judah, and the other is going to be a house of Israel. And he's going to say, "You know, son of man, bring these two staffs together, and I'm going to unite these two kingdoms again." So, and this is where all the legends come about, where the lost twelve ten tribes are going to come back out of the blue, and they're going to reunite, and all this kind of stuff. My sense of the matter. Is that the prophecy is actually about the Gentiles? So that Israel here, its true fulfillment is actually non-Jewish believers of Jesus. That's my my sense of the matter. I don't know if I can prove that, but I've got some passages from Paul that seem to imply that. So I interpret the Old Testament via the New Testament. It seems like that's what Paul, how Paul interprets some of these passages. It's just something though that I'm kind of still thinking about and wondering about. Um, And I don't know if you guys can help me out on that, but if you have any insights, go for it. So if we want to go, let's go to Jeremiah 33. Verses 14 to 26. And I'll just read this here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Again, we see both house, both of these different groups. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth for David. Remember, that's the same branch that we read about, the uh, the root of Jesse, the branch that comes forth from the from the root of Jesse. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness, it meaning the branch. So it's a, it's a person, it's a king, and the king is going to be called the Lord our righteousness. Um, and that's pretty good because remember, we've been having a hard time being righteous up until this point. Okay, We've had all this human failure, and so righteousness is going to come through this future messianic figure. Okay, because otherwise it's not going to happen. We can't do it on our own. We need His righteousness and not our own. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn cereal offerings and to make sacrifices forever. Uh, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now, I think how you would want to interpret this passage, I, I've spoken about this before, is that the people, uh, the prophets would prophesy about future events that were yet unseen and unfulfilled via things that were seen and could be understood and immediately apprehended. So the most immediate thing for them was this kind of lineage of David that had repeated descendants. And so there's a kind of a multiplicity to David's descendants in this. Okay, And also the Levitical priesthood. So that the prophecy is going to be fulfilled in some way, but the prophet... Portrays that that prophecy in terms of things that he understood at his time, meaning Levitical priests, Levitical priesthood. So um, I would believe, and I would think again, this is a little bit of a conjecture in my point, but that this is fulfilled first and foremost in Christ Himself. But you see, in Christ, the uh, the kingship of David and the priesthood come back together and are fulfilled because Christ is. Uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's a priesthood fulfillment to Jesus. And, uh, then I think it's also fulfilled, you know, again, not to, you know, whatever, risking to, to pat myself on the back or whatever, but, it, uh, it's also in the Catholic priesthood. Okay? Because it's the one sacrifice of the high priest Jesus Christ that's represented in the Mass. Okay? And through uh, through our all, our common priesthood of the baptism, but also specifically through the priesthood, uh, the Catholic priesthood, the ministerial priesthood. And so, when you see the Levitical priests in the, so this is not the only passage in the Old Testament that talks about Levitical priests doing stuff in the Messianic era. There's lots of passages that talk about Levitical priests offering sacrifices when the Messiah comes. And I think the way to understand that is the Eucharistic sacrifice and the and the Christian ministerial priesthood. That's how I would I, I would imagine that's fulfilled. So let's go to Ezekiel here. We got about twenty minutes left. Now, would you rather go to Ezekiel and read Ezekiel, or do you want to talk? And you got any things, comments, or questions, or things that you want to talk about? We got twenty minutes. What do you think? What would you rather do? Any questions or things that come to my mind? Go for it. Go like go on to keep reading. Okay. Uh, so let's go Ezekiel uh, thirty four. Oh, I lied to you guys. Lamentations is right after Jeremiah. <laughs> and so is uh, Baruch, I think, too, if I'm not mistaken. So then it's Ezekiel after those those little commercial breaks. You know, Lamentations is like a commercial break, and then you get back to the main thing. It's Ezekiel. <laughs> Ezekiel 34.
4: I get out tired of trying to find it. <laughs>
0: Joyce, I'm trying to make it easy for you. It's one book right after the other one, but I'm sorry. I lied to you, though, because you have to go skipped over both Lamentations and Burr. It's okay. (laughs) All right, thank you. So let's go to 3420.
4: No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I
0: think. Okay, who's a brave volunteer? Sheila, are are you into reading? No, okay. Okay, we'll
2: have Rich again read. Right, so we're 34.20 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now will I judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and butt all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them out. I will save my sheep so that they may no longer be despoiled. And I will judge between one sheep and another. I will appoint one sheep over them to pasture them, my servant David. He shall pasture them, and he will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the country of ravenous beasts. They shall... Or, that they may dwell securely in the desert and sleep in the forest. I will place them about my hill, sending rain in due season, rains that shall be a blessing to them. The trees of the field shall bear their fruits and the land its crops, and they shall dwell securely on their own soil. Thus they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bonds of their yoke and free them from the power of those who enslave them. They shall no longer be despoiled by the nations or devoured by the beasts of the earth, but shall dwell secure, with no one to frighten them. I will prepare for them a, a peaceful fields for planting. They shall no longer be carried off by famine in the land or bear the reproaches of the nations. Thus they shall say, uh, th- thus I shall know that I am the Lord, am their God, and they are my people. The house of Israel says, "The Lord God." That's good.
0: All right, good. So you've got this metaphor of these sheep. So did you find it, Joyce? Finally. Okay, okay, all right, good. There's a little bit of it. like a crisis taking place over there. So um, you've got this metaphor of the sheep. Does anybody do, has anybody had sheep or done a little farming or anything like that? You know, you, if you have the, if you have the. The males sometimes the males are, are can be kind of aggressive and, and kind of mean and they can butt you know even little little like little tiny sheep will just get kind of run over it and trample it and butt it around and so you've got this the kings were abusive that's the point here is the leaders of Israel were doing a bad job leading the people and they were kind of exploiting the people leading them into idolatry and then exploiting them and uh, and not being good leaders and so God says okay I've had enough of this I'm going to send a new king who's going to be totally righteous. And so he talks about and he actually uses the word David. David is my my king, my servant David is going to be king amongst them. And uh so again, I think that you have to understand it's a future prophecy. It's a it's a prophecy about future affairs being understood in terms that they understand. David was the ideal king. Okay, he's an ideal king in their memory and their it almost had been kind of a legendary figure at that point at this point in history 500 years after david and so david had this kind of you know all of israel was united under david and it was kind of a it was a little bit of a, an ideal era and so then this new future king if comes about is just flat out called david david's going to be king but it's really it's the messiah um what else can we talk about here i thought it was interesting well god himself is going to be their shepherd all right and Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd in the New Testament. Okay, um, I will make them a covenant of peace. So here's another covenant. And again, we see this as, uh, you know, I think we can be very confident this is a Messianic prophecy because of the sense of finality that you have. This is never again will this take place. Never again. There will be peace and harmony, so forth and so on. Uh, so there's this kind of sense of an absoluteness and finality to it that lets us know this is a prophecy about the ultimate... What's the famous word I've been using? That Greek word starts with an e... Remember?
1: Eschaton.
0: Eschaton, yes. Did you get it? Tony got it. All right. I told you you were still at So it's the eschaton that's being talked about here because there's a sense of finality to it. It's the end of the world. It's that point towards which God's plan of salvation has been uh, tending all along. And uh, what, again, what about the animals? We see this thing with the animals. What's going on with the animals? There's, they're going to be peaceful these animals are not going to be they're not going to be attacked by animals anymore okay so again it's a sign of it's a result of sin that there's alienation between man and nature man and animals and remember how we've talked about that before we see these little uh, foreshadowings of that eschatological restoration in certain saints lives you know and you got uh, Cuthbert of England Saint Cuthbert I told you about the story where he's cold one night he's out on his missionary works and this is on the shore of like uh, you know whales or something and uh, it's freezing he gets caught in the dark and it's negative 20 or 30 or something and he's going to die and so how does God save him he has a he has a walrus waddle up on the on the uh, on the shore and he snuggles up with a walrus in the in the middle of the night so the walrus keeps him warm so what we have is is nature being reconciled to God's saints you know and then of course, who's the most famous saint with the animals? Saint Francis. Francis. Saint Francis with the animals, okay? Yeah. So Saint Francis really was just continuing a long tradition of saints snuggling up and being kind and fun with the animals. And point is, is that you've got that a- enmity between the serpent or between the natural world and animals and man, which still exists right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, we're reminded about every time a, a blood-sucking mosquito lands upon us in, in upstate New York and starts pumping its his body full of our blood. <laughs> We're like, yep, original sin. Original sin, right there. Um, so, uh, so, but it's it is a, a remarkable and beautiful thing in the lives of the saints, the miraculous testimony to God's ability uh, to liberate us from original sin when the when the animals are at peace with the saints. And so, that's going to be our future heritage. Um, let's look at Ezekiel thirty-six. Verse twenty four to thirty six. Now Ezekiel is a really. let let me say this by the by. First of all, don't ever believe me when I say this is my favorite book in the Bible because every book that I start to read, you know, I'm like, oh, it's my favorite book. Okay, so don't ever believe me. But I, I really do love. I love the books in the Bible. And but Ezekiel is a really powerful book. Yeah. And, and, uh, if you ever, I've heard, I've heard some renditions of it, people reading it out loud, and it's the most dramatic book. And it's very intense, and if, you know, Sue, if you want to talk about scandalous, weird things in the Bible, Ezekiel's full of it. It, It's really, really scandalous and intense, and very highly, actually very sexual in some places, okay? It talks a lot about, it likens the northern and the southern kingdom to prostitutes, and so it starts talking about these prostitutes, and it gets really graphic, and you're like, oh my gosh and uh it's it's not i mean it's not uh pg you know and uh okay so you got that element of it but then begin so there's no children amongst us right okay good um you got that element but then you've got these visions that ezekiel sees and they're out of this world visions uh you've got these fi- these animal creature figures these ch- they're like cross between animals and angels and there's this firmament over the head of these angels that they've got these wings. There's six wings and some of them, they're, they're staying put. And then there's these wheels. And the wheels got eyes all in the wheels. And then there's one wheel within a wheel. And then there's this... And the animals are moving back and forth like this, north, south, east, west, all over the world. And then there's a firmament. On the firmament, there's a throne. And there's this human-like figure that's on the throne with fire burning. all. It was like, oh my gosh! Okay, so there's this really wild image... And, uh, you know, so people wonder what's this vision that Ezekiel's having of God? Why is God revealing himself in this fashion? Okay? It's really, really deep mystical, uh, imagery. And then you have a temple that's portrayed at the end of Ezekiel. Okay? And this temple, the prophet goes in and it's like 15 chapters describing this temple. He's like measuring its doorways and all this kind of stuff. And talking in detail about all the sacrifices that are going to be offered in this temple. Uh, but again, I, I believe the proper interpretation of that is it's a metaphor, okay? And it's a metaphor of the church, and of the Christian era, and the body of Christ, who is the temple of God. And, uh, we've heard this now two, twice I think in our mass readings. You have the temple with the stream that goes out to the south, and it flows down into the, in down to the river Jordan, and then it goes into the Dead Sea, and it heals the Dead Sea, and the fish that are in the Dead Sea can live. From the water that comes from this temple, and so that—that's a future temple that Ezekiel um, prophesies about. Now, Ezekiel is full of so many mysteries. Like people think the last Bible book of the Bible is full of mysteries. I don't know. Ezekiel is a pretty good competitor. Um, yeah, and Daniel is as well. Exactly. So uh, Ezekiel's very mysterious book, and the Jewish people in their tradition, the rabbinical Judaism, says this that the the rabbi in training is not allowed to read Ezekiel until he's uh, he has to be at least forty years old it 's pretty interesting you know you know uh, got to be at least forty years old. I think I'm probably under, I'm under 40. Do we have anybody else? You guys, and you guys under 40? Is everybody guys, here? Oh, oh, we got a lot of, oh, we got, oh, I'm sorry. That was very presumptuous of me. That was very presumptuous of me. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. Okay. So, uh. With the bones, yeah. So he comes out in the valley of dry bones, and the dry bones start rattling together, and the wind starts shaking, and the bones start assembling themselves, and then the ligaments start attaching to the bones, and then all the muscles start to go back on the bones, and then the flesh. It's a really amazing, you know, vision that he has. No, no. And he, okay, even more so. Listen to this, Ezekiel. He, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is the proper interpretation, he would do this thing where he was... Okay, so he's living in Jerusalem. We're not going to be able to finish this, guys, by the way. So I'm just going to keep talking about how cool Ezekiel is. <laughs> so Ezekiel is living in Jerusalem. I'm sorry. He's in exile. He's living in Babylon. Okay? But he all his visions have to do with Jerusalem. And he travels to Jerusalem like in spirit. And he sees all of these detailed sins... You know, going behind closed doors like he floats behind closed doors and he sees all the sins of the elders and the leaders of Jerusalem and their idolatrous acts in the temple precincts. And so in the sacred precincts of the temple, the leaders of Jerusalem are doing all these idolatrous things. And Ezekiel is, is seeing this like on a, cam, a movie camera. It's like he's, he's flown to Jerusalem, you know. It's like a transcendental flight. flight. But he's actually in Babylon. And in Babylon, by the way, he's in his hut. And he's laying down on one side and he's made a little model of Jerusalem like out of clay and rocks and stones. And he's like bringing toy soldiers against it and knocking down its walls. <laughs> and and he, can't, he can't move from this position so he's like on his side for like 40 days or 50 days. And the the elders who are of the Jewish elders who are in Babylon, they come in and they say, Ezekiel, what's going? On? What are you doing, man? What's going on? And he can't talk unless God prophesies through him. So his tongue cleaves to the roof of his mouth unless there's a prophecy. So anytime he speaks, it's thus saith the Lord. And let me tell you, the message is not very happy. So the guy is a is a pretty intense dude. I mean. he's really something else and then he eats a special kind of bread so they say he says make a certain kind of barley bread with a particular kind of um, what is it
4: Ezekiel Ezekiel bread bread.
0: yeah yeah, there's Ezekiel bread someone said hey let's make this bread that Ezekiel lived on for 40 days let's eat that yeah that's where it comes from Ezekiel bread yeah Entrepreneurian American Christian. You know? <laughs> so, how about we save this for next time? We're going to read some pretty neat stuff. Let's read the passage about the uh, um, <clears throat> the bones, the dry bones assembling and all that kind of stuff. Okay, So let's do that next time. Uh, let's take another five minutes or so and just kind of, I don't know, any, any questions or thoughts or anything? Hmm. Rich? I'll
2: come back to, the, to something about... This.
0: Oh yeah, it's humanum. It's a really beautiful thing. It's uh, it's H U M A N U M. So there's two elements to this. They wanted to do what we're trying to do, guys, uh, and we're we're kind of catching up. Is we're trying to use social media because this is how people communicate today. It's through the different, uh, through images and video and YouTube and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you got, you got these old, old time theologians who are like, you have gray hair, like we gotta, we gotta, you know, utilize this, these young whippersnapper tools to try to reach the world. So, but they've done an excellent job. The, there's two things. There's a scholarly wing or element of humanum, and then there's like a popular presentation of humanum. Popular presentation has at least four, I think five, 15 minute clips about the family, about marriage and the family, and the compatibility, the, the sexual compatibility of men and women. Okay? Because it's really, this is under attack. You know, people don't believe in marriage anymore. Okay? And it's a real serious problem. And our Western civilization is decaying because of this. And so we're trying to, the best we can, as the Church of Christ, who, who is responsible for teaching the truth about the moral law. Uh, we're trying the best we can, and uh, I, I think these videos are beautiful. I, I, they brought tears to my eyes. I was crying through the midway through the first or second one, and uh, this is very artistic. It's not very intellectual. It appeals to your emotions, and then you have the conferences, so you have like, oh, I would say probably 20 or 30 scholars. You've got this one woman... Um, uh, I thought she was wonderful. She's a, actually a Baptist, if I'm not mistaken. She, or she might be like, oh, Zion Episcopal Church. Uh, a, a woman, you know, theologian scholar. Um, and she's got this, you know, the, the black woman. It's like a Martin Luther King Jr. kind of voice. You know, very powerful voice. She's an amazing speaker. And um, she talks about marriage actually in relation to minority groups and blacks in America. And her speech is incredible. And then it's a very international thing. So you've got Germans, and you've got all these people from different countries, and you've got Catholic theologians, and you've got Protestant theologians, and you've got a Jewish uh, rabb- rabbinical scholar, rabbi, uh, the former rabbi of um, Great Britain. And uh, it's just a great kind of event because it's something that's like authentically ecumenical. We can all get on board with, and and say, you know, we as Christians and and Jews, we all affirm the importance of. You know, one man, one woman for life, and uh, so it's a it's a really great series of scholars that that do some good things. And there's there's married scholars and there's celibate scholars. There's a one woman uh, I can't remember what her name is, but um, she is the head of the Nashville Dominicans. It's Mother something. I can't remember her name, but her presentation is awesome too. So you know, men and women, and it's just a it's just a really rich, diverse intelligent super intelligent presentation of the issues that we face today about marriage and the family and um, and then the videos are very uh, very they really pull on the heartstrings and it's very artistic and beautiful so george seems would be a,
1: a separation between what you're talking about yeah without a connection to what's actually going on politically in the world, and especially specifically in the United States, the things politically that are actually laws are being passed yeah, and I are well, developing. Well, that's
0: why we—they tried. They did the humanum. It's precisely to try to bring some light into the darkness. You know, well,
1: on the one hand, on the other hand, it seems like Christians are ignoring the fact that these things are actually happening, and they're just sitting back, allowing it. You're
0: right, but well, we're trying to stop that. I mean it's at least it's a modest attempt to to, to, to go to well, to that, listen
1: to what you're saying. Sometimes yeah. I think I think that out of the pulpit the connection isn't really being forced Yeah. although it's sometimes intimated. Like New York State. I read something just recently.